0: Good evening, this is Cinema 60.
1: Buongiorno, Bart. Buona sera.
0: And the reason why we butchered that in Italiano is that we are today speaking about Federico Fellini, the number one Italian director of the 60s.
1: Or period. Is there is there anyone who su- surpassed Fellini since Fellini? No, I don't think so.
0: Maybe not. I mean, I'm happy to agree with that. I'm a huge fan of Fellini. I don't know why we put this off for so long. I guess it's because I sort of... Well, neither of us are really big fans of rewatching movies, and we've seen all of these. I think like it's been probably since Anna Karina or Clint Eastwood, where I have actually seen every single one of these films, like the whole episode is a rewatch. There was only one of these movies for Fellini I hadn't seen.
1: I'd seen all of these before, but it had been a long, long time, and I'd actually kind of Fellini had kind of faded from my mind a bit. He was huge for me in, you know, becoming a cinephile. And I adored his films. I, I've seen eight and a half so many times. But you know, I haven't revisited him in a long time. So I uh, I was excited to do this episode to see if I still felt the same way about the guy. And my feelings have changed, but not not in a negative way. Well, certain, certain, there are certain <laughs> negative things that I, I have to say about Fellini, but uh, I still love his oeuvre and I'm really excited to talk about him. This is going to be a good episode or at least fun for me to talk about these movies anyway. Hopefully it's fun for people to listen to.
0: Yeah, I've always loved Fellini. He's been a huge part also of, of my sininess <laughs> uh, where I, definitely one of the the first movies when I was really getting into movie watching, I made a point to watch La Dolce Vita and was totally confused by it. <laughs> uh I liked it, but at the time I really was expecting La Dolce Vita, I think, as, as in a way and probably many people were going into watching that movie the first time. So I had this sort of genuine experience about coming around on understanding it in every subsequent viewing, and the I have to say, the more and more I watch it, the more I love it. So that's kind of a nice thing in general about Fellini. The more that I'm rewatching his movies, whereas part of the reason I don't typically like to rewatch movies is because it's always missing something that's you know the first time around is just always the most magical, uh, and and I find that I don't really my opinion doesn't typically change that much from watching and rewatching but with Fellini I'm finding that there was so much more there's just so much to to dig into and you start picking up on all these tiny little details of things that you didn't notice the first time around so highly recommend sitting down and even rewatching all of the Fellini movies <laughs> in order why not there's an interesting progression which we'll we'll probably talk about at the end anyhow
1: you and you'd watch some of these pretty freshly right
0: uh... I rewatched La Dolce Vita a couple years ago and, and eight and a half a couple of years ago.
1: You've got extensive uh, letterbox reviews for them. And I know that that's that usually means it's a fairly recent viewing.
0: Oh, I guess I must have. I, I But I like I think about these movies a lot. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: That's the thing. Like they, they really think about them. I'm always thinking about how much I want to rewatch them. And maybe they've come around in theaters again. Uh, I know like Film Forum has been playing a lot of Fellini things and that might have been part of it or Quad was playing. uh, They were playing City of Women for a while. I don't know if that's what I saw there again. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think about Fellini a lot. You know what it was? It might've been, I was going through my um, Comedia all Italiano phase, right? When I started getting on Letterboxd and that might've been part of what inspired me to rewatch him.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, La Dolce Vita is the ultimate, Il Boom movie well maybe not the ultimate but definitely it was going to be a big part of the Il Boom episode that we had planned and now now we're talking in, about it in the context of Fellini so we kind of blew that but there're plenty of others right
0: and that's a, that's an episode we, you and I have been talking about doing since we since this was podcast was just a glint in our eyes so I think that is the,
1: <laughs> that's the reason we put off Fellini I think because we were planning on doing La Dolce Vita for for the Eel Boom episode, but it was thrilling to watch his movies from the 60s in order because of this progression that you you mentioned. Like, you really see it. Like, it's so clear how he changed, how his approach to filmmaking changed over the course of the 60s. And, you know, La Dolce Vita sort of sparked that big change. He was, you know, he was kind of still in the um, neorealist style uh, in the, in the 50s. His movies were not you know, flights of fantasia. They were, you know, there. There were certain elements of that. He definitely enjoyed performance. His his uh, his circus obsession definitely came into play, and La Strada for sure, and and you know all of his films, The White Sheik, um, but they were all sort of in. They stuck to this sort of realism, you know, capturing life as it's actually lived, and and uh, not uh, not getting into the the fantastical stuff the, the dream like you know cinema that he later became famous for um, i mean nights of cabiria i guess in 1957 was sort of the first sign that he was trying to trying to branch out from from neorealism a bit uh, but uh, La dolce vita is in 1960 is really where where everything began to change for him and he he sort of took his neorealist approach and added a, an element of yeah, I mean I guess fantasy is the best way to put it. It's certain sequences in this are are very dreamlike and it doesn't follow any, you know, real narrative progression. Like that's the thing that really dropped out with the 60s movies is his attention to plot faded and he uh his his movies become a series of impressions of of you know, character interactions of of set pieces um rather than stories. And uh, I'll I'll just jump right into uh, to talking about La Dolce Vita. It's about uh, Marcello Mastriani in his first film with Fellini, who then became his stand-in, invariably linked with uh, with Fellini hereafter. Mastriani wasn't even a huge star when he made La Dolce Vita. He'd, he'd been in a bunch of big movies, big deal on Madonna Street, and you know worked with Visconti, and you know he was he was definitely in the industry for a while, but more of a character actor. And La Dolce Vita made him a big star. He plays a journalist, a gossip columnist, or a you know celebrity journalist. Does features on on celebrities for for newspapers, um, but he has dreams of being a a great artist, and and he's sort of doing this you know, nonsense journalism to pay the bills. Um, but what he really wants to do is write the great uh, the great Italian novel. But is too distracted by the glitz and glamour of Roman life and the celebrities and the, you know, people throwing money around and the decadence. And uh, he's he's also got a got an eye for the ladies and he's got sort of, a, he's got a live-in girlfriend who wants to marry him, but he's always sleeping around on her. You're really just following this character and watching his downfall, I guess you'd call it. And, and it's just a series of vignettes and you, you sort of see his... Job, what he does, he he works with this photographer named Paparazzo, which is where the uh, the expression Paparazzi came from. Um, and they, you know, hang out at this nightclub and wait for celebrities to show up and do crazy things so that they can take pictures and report about it. Playing playing a guy called Marcello, Fellini seems to like to do that for whatever reason. Just name his characters after the actors who play them. He runs into. This uh, you know, this wealthy widow that uh, played by Anouk Emi, who is you know, sort of turns out to be the one woman that he really has a connection with, and would you know, give up everything to be with her, and uh, and I think it's because she's sort of got this uh, you know, depressive, dissatisfied with life attitude that matches his own. Um, but you know, I I could go through all the all the different vignettes. There's you know, there's there are these children who who see the Virgin Mary and there's a big circus of uh, reporters and TV crews and people who've come to get their sick children healed. And, um, and there's famous sequence where Anita Ekberg playing a famous Swedish actress comes to Rome and they, uh, he, he, he runs around town with her and they take a, take a dip in the fountain. And it's a lot of us watching Marcello being bummed that he, can't seem to do anything with his life except sleep around and uh, and do crap journalism when he really wants to make something of himself and the inevitable slide into total decadence and and misery or not even misery I don't know what what do I need to add to La Dolce Vita and and what it's all about
0: well this time you know what do you think this movie is all about because I think that that's an interesting question and one that Doesn't seem terribly settled considering that this is such a spoken about film. I mean, at first, like, I I also kind of get into this, like, well, it's all been said before, but I don't know. Every time I watch this movie, I come away with something different. Like, the first time I watched it, I was expecting it to be about La Dolce Vita, and then you realize, oh, it's about, you know, the downsides of La Dolce Vita. And then the second or third time, like, the last couple of times, like, I, I watched it, I just thought it was just more about. Dissatisfaction, like people who who like live for the exclamation points in life, but they can't stand the silence in between. You know, like I was like you're expecting the dream, but you're getting the hard crash of reality. But then this time around, I had a, a, an even more nuanced take on it. But I'm curious about what what you think this whole film is about. I know there's also like a really Catholic interpretation of this movie. Uh, you know, you can there's like so many layers to it.
1: I think this movie is about how men are conflicted and boring, and women are full of life and know exactly what they want. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really is true. The male character, that was actually one of the few negative responses I had to the film watching at this time, was that, like, Marcello is such a drag. He's such a jerk. <laughs> and i it's kind of boring to watch him be like oh i'm not making anything in my life you know i don't i found myself not really caring about his his struggles with uh, trying to create something meaningful and and all and but all the female characters all the women jump off the screen like there's you know they're just such colorful characters and i think there's some intention to that that it's a you know, sort of dichotomy that the Fellini is definitely setting up and uh you know and it's it's sort of him i think trying to you know address his own i don't i don't know i don't know enough about fellini's personal life to attribute uh profligacy to him like i i assume that he slept around on on julietta messina he 100 percent did <laughs> based on on all the movies he's made about that subject but uh yeah i uh I didn't find myself very interested in the main character. I loved all the secondary characters, and I think that's that's in, intentional. That's the The arc of the story is kind of a, in a way, a feminization of of our masculine male character. Like as as the movie progresses, he becomes more like, especially when he hits bottom by the at the end of the film. He knows he's very forceful. He's cruel. He's flamboyant. He is. The life of the party in a way where you you, you don't want to have that person at your party kind of guy. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what to conclude about it, but I definitely feel like Fellini is playing with gender. And yeah, I I, I I don't know. I don't know what to... That That's just my takeaway this time viewing it. And it was something I hadn't necessarily noticed before about this film. But what it's about? I don't know. I think it's just a lot of Fellini hand-wringing. Feeling bad about sleeping around and trying to get to the, the bottom of the male psyche and what makes men behave so poorly.
0: I feel like that's eight and a half.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is. And I think that there's a real conversation between La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half. Yeah. They're sort of two sides of the same coin. But we'll get to that when we get to eight and a half. Um what's your what's your theory about this movie?
0: Well, I think everything you're saying is interesting to me. I think you know one of the things that I really love about this movie is the transformation of Marcello from the beginning to the end. That last scene with him is just so haunting to me and it just disgusts me every single time. <laughs> and it's it's such a good the
1: party the, the scene right before the final.
0: Well, yeah, so, the the final mm-hmm. final scene on the beach is is just I think uh, amazing and we'll talk about it, but the the scene at that final party where he is just being the absolute worst version of himself but here's the thing so this time around what really stood out to me and here's my grant my current grand theory about la dolce vita is that this entire movie is essentially about the pursuit of magic people looking for magic and then being inevitably disappointed so you have this really interesting arc of like the beginning where we see first off we see Jesus on a cross uh, being carried by it through a helicopter through the city, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which in, in itself is just a very surreal image. I'm sure there's some there's a whole layer of Catholicism symbolism in this entire movie, uh, inevitably that I'm missing out on. But um, still, I think that this this mix of of modernity and the pursuit of magic. And the the reality of it, I mean, like it doesn't it hasn't changed that much from what I thought it was, but it just kind of got deeper to me because now everything makes sense. Like where once I, I thought some sections of this movie work better than others, I now feel that all of them are, are equal.
1: I have only grown more and more uncomfortable with watching rich people display their wealth on screen as as time has progressed. So. I get a little bit bored by these fancy, glamorous parties. And so the one, the party at Steiner's house where it's a bunch of fancy people being intellectual, like I find that kind of dull. You know, I, I like when they go to the castle and they, you know, that magic really comes into that scene. And I think you're you're onto something with this magic thing. I never, uh, never really put that together, but it also explains the big, you know, the big monster they pull out of the sea at the end of this movie. It's like... You know, there there is magic in this world. Yeah, I'll have to watch it again with that in mind.
0: I'm going to break it down for you. So I think the Steiner party is the big, is like kind of the key to the whole movie. It's a clear middle section anyhow. But like Steiner, his whole thing, we meet him when he's sort of looking for spirituality in church, right? He's not, he says he's not religious, but he's playing the organ. He calls the organ a voice from earth. And he plays that like, Dracula song, (laughs)
1: like what's the name of that song? It's a funereal march, isn't it? Isn't that why Marcello is so disgusted and leaves because he's he's afraid of death, and that's why. And he's yeah, he's creeped out
0: because Steiner's also like you know he he's clearly he's missing something, and it's also a bit of this, of course, a foreshadowing into the chasm of the darkness inside of him, right? But once we get to Steiner's party you have this mix of like intellectuals who are totally childlike and then those who feel like they're above it all. Uh, they're, they're pontificating and they're showing off to each other and nobody's actually listening to each other. Uh, and meanwhile, Marcello looks at this and, and he just sees like, oh, like these are, these are a level of intellectual that I wish that I could, could host, right? He says, your house is a refuge to Steiner. <laughs> and Steiner says that being miserable is better than, be- than living in perfection. He says, you know, I'm afraid of the of the peace that I do have. And, and you know, he, he feels totally detached. And what he's really doing is he's warning against this idea of putting your entire life on dreams and miracles and magic, you know, because because it's an inevitable disappointment. The second that you achieve these dreams, you realize that they, they, they've never even really existed. Right. We create magic as, as an escapism. But the escape is actually more important. The, the pursuit of the escape is more important than the accomplishment of of having, uh, you know, achieved it or even living it. Hmm. And so then, if we even look back, right, like the first scene where he's there with uh, a new amuse, uh, I think her name's Magdalena mm-hmm. or Madalena, and uh, she, like, you know, they're they're going, they're picking up a hooker. To go to her house to have sex, because that's like that's the what's magic to her as a as this like rich upper class woman like that's that's the realness for her, is going to this other woman's house and you know having an affair, whereas you know Marcello then the whole scene scene with Anita Ekberg as Sylvia, is just Marcello being so enchanted by her and everything that she represents and everything that he wants you know this is money beauty power thing you know, she, she's living in the dream that we all want to possess and touch. But then when confronted with it, you know, like we're, we're held back, like Marcello in the fountain, he can't even touch her. And then of course, her husband, you know, Robert, who brings everyone back to earth, because he like punches her. <laughs> you know, we realize that that all of this beauty and escapism is just what she's trying to do in order to get away from the life that she actually does have, which is being in this horribly abusive relationship. And, you know, being treated like a a thing to everybody instead of a human is sort of a symbol of beauty and and loveliness, and and that's her escapism, right? She's like jumping into this fountain, picking up cats, and trying to just live in the moment because she's just—it's so horrible when she doesn't. But but we don't we don't see that. We're not seeing this as her escapism. We're seeing her as being this embodiment of it, the way that Marcello does. Uh, So then we finally get all of this stuff with Emma, who's Marcello's girlfriend, uh, you know, long term girlfriend, and she is just like, praying for him to love her more. You know, that's her that's all she wants. That's her dream is that, you know, he will love her and then everything will be perfect. And of course, you know, he loves work more he he loves uh, his own, you know, escapism and pursuit. Plus, I mean, all of his commentary about just the way that the media exploits everything, uh, you know, with with old paparazzo and the, the miracle field, all of these people turning just to just desperate people who are in need of miracles because their lives are so miserable. And and, you know, meanwhile, this family grifting everybody because they're trying to make their own dreams come true <laughs> through through grifting all of that, of course, being sort of brilliantly undercut by the rain, you know, being undercut by by actual like an act of God that that, you know, nobody can control and and uh, which is just like sort of intellectually satisfying. Right. And then we're in Steiner's party and then we get Marcello on the beach and he's trying to trying to write finally write something. But he gets distracted by this young girl who's talking about what, you know, her dreams and what she wants to be and her enjoying herself in the moment when she's too young and innocent to have been totally corrupted. She's sort of lost in her dream world. And then he becomes sort of sucked into that, even though he initially talks to her because she's enjoying herself too much (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it pisses him off. Then we get Marcello's father. And that whole scene, I think is just so heartbreaking too, because it's his father being dazzled by the pace of the big city and like, Oh, what about this old club? And they all show up and, Then you start to get like, like Marcello doesn't realize how heartbreaking this entire thing is. He watches his father suddenly in an element he never really got to see his father in. Uh, He's saying, oh, I sold champagne to half of Italy. It was always on the road, you know, and womanizing and and having fun. This is everything that he was doing while, you know, Marcello says when when my father was never home when I was a kid. He never came back. And all we would do is watch my mother cry and cry. And I didn't really know him. But he's fun. Right. He's fun. And you're like, oh, my God, he doesn't even like he doesn't even he's like willfully getting the wrong conclusion because to accept the truth is just too heartbreaking. Right. And he even turns in early because it's just so draining. (laughs) Uh, And then, of course, his father also has this realization that he's not the young man that he used to be, Uh, you know, kind of freaks out, has a bit of a health crisis and, and has to go and marcello is like trying to get his father to stay a bit longer he even says we never get to see each other and yet here's his father doing the same old thing just i gotta go bye you know disappears then i'm almost at the end of this movie then we're in (laughs) the rich person castle which is again it's just full of like the the upper class twits of of italy the the aristocracy that's just doing nothing
1: i love seeing nico there as a like Goofy yes. And silly. I totally forgot that she you know, she's such she's got this Ice Queen image and you know Velvet Underground and, and, and everything after that. But in this movie she's so fun and full of life. It was I'd forgotten that.
0: This is there's so many good little um cameos from actual La Dolce Vita people, like hangers-on and stuff like that, which is interesting. I I realized this time around whether or not I knew it, but uh, Adriano uh, Celentano, who who um, is the Italian like that rock and roll singer with Anita Ekberg, mm. um, that's he's you know well known well known especially on the internet to to the non Italian crowd of singing that song that sounds like what English sounds like to an Italian. <laughs> the prison colonist can I or whatever it's called anyhow um he shows up in a bunch of movies but uh right so they're they're at the rich person place um you know it's full of all these people looking to spirituality in order to you know find magic they're trying to find anything that keeps them going because they don't have any struggle in life and so they have to make their own struggles they're just sort of caving internally and Though of course, the houses that they're living in are also caving around them uh, in parallel. But then there's also that sort of brilliant scene where we get Madalena again, where uh, she's sort of telling Marcello, you know, you mean so much to me. And she brings him to this sort of like chamber and, and leaves him there. And it's this like whispering room where she can be in another room and whisper into a fountain. and He can hear it in this sort of like middle chamber. And this is the only way that she knows how to speak seriously to him. And the only way that she knows how to like actually confess anything real to him is to have this th- like multiple degrees of separation from the actual thing. And yet this is what she feels is is reality. And this is what, again, Marcello is sort of dazzled by is this idea of that, oh, I actually do matter and at a safe distance, you know, like this is almost everything that he wants. And they have this like he feels like they have this real connection and he starts to actually open up to her with her not being there And meanwhile, of course, she's like just making out with some other guy who just happens to come along and he can't, Marcella doesn't even know until she just stops replying to him. And then, of course, we have this woman who's like going crazy in the castle about how she wants love and she wants to live and, and, you know, everyone in their, their gilded cages and then finally things start to really just break down because it's just too much it's too much to to handle you can't live your entire life on dreams and and even if you get them they're they're nothing you know it's like the sort of thing you're striving and striving towards something and and the closer you get to it the more it, it falls apart and goes away and then this also this clashing of magic, where like you know if if your dream doesn't align with somebody else's, and you're both like and and both of your dreams sort of hinge on each other, like Emma and and Marcello, where they have that horrendous fight in their car, and she says just you know and she calls him out correctly, and she says you treat me like shit, you know like what and and his whole thing is like what do you even want from me? But like again, her dream is is on the idea that that he's going to come back to her and his dream is on the idea that that she needs to like step away from him but he also still wants the comfort of having like a wife basically but without the commitment of being married and so uh you know the the worst thing that can happen here is to break that illusion it creates this just complete rift in their relationship that is completely unrepairable and super toxic uh and is and they're losing a handle on completely uh, and that's, of course, then when we find out that Steiner kills himself and his two children, which is, and Marcello's reaction to that is maybe he was afraid. Like, of what? He, yeah. Because he was destroying perfection, you know? It's like he, this idea that that he was afraid to to be alone with, with happiness. I mean, like, that in itself is just haunting and creepy. Uh, and then we get to the, that really creepy party where we have Marcello straight up tarring and feathering a girl that you know that he sees as an effigy of himself he sees this this girl as as representing who he used to be someone from a small town who came moved to the big city and and is trying to hang with you know the beautiful people and and he's just like absolutely abuses her never mind how nasty he is to everybody else and says like oh the only way to get a real party is let's have like a woman being basically raped by all these men he starts insulting everyone people doing strip teases out of boredom. Everyone in this room is a nobody and they're all desperate for something that they know doesn't exist or they don't. Maybe they're too, they're too disillusioned and, and they don't realize it. And then we get to that ending and then we get to this ending where Marcello's black suit and white shirt is now inversed to a white suit with a black shirt. <laughs> <laughs> this darkness uh the the corruption of his dreams manifest completely in in the series multiple series of events and then that fisherman pulls up this giant ray and what what was your you said you had a big conclusion for this movie based on this scene
1: oh i don't think so. i think when i when you were talking about um realizing that the girl that he sees at the end is the same one from the middle of the movie that he yells at for playing her music too loud I don't, I don't even know how much I want to bring this up but Fellini's idea that uh this ideal of youth and beauty and innocence and and it, it's kind of bullshit. I don't know. I don't have I don't have a deep theory ab- about it but uh I don't particularly like the way that Fellini always has this this young beautiful girl or woman who who represents this innocence lost in in all of his movies. It's it's kind of easy kind of kind of shallow but It's just uh, it's it's Fellini putting this, uh, you know, one of his favorite symbols into into all of his movies. And he, he even calls himself out on it in eight and a half. So he's perfectly aware of what he's doing. But there is a there is a certain falseness to some of his symbols that that stood out to me this time through. Yeah. But I do think that you nailed it with following magic and dreams throughout this film. The one key element in that that you know Steiner party that that is sort of the the crux, what changes everything from the beginning of the movie to the second half of the movie, is the the domestic bliss that Marcello is so drawn to. He sees Steiner and his beautiful wife, who is you know able to keep up with all these intellectuals at this party, and these two beautiful children who you know he's got this perfect family, and it's a you know refuge for for intellectuals and ideas and art. I mean, a big part of Marcello's dream is being able to have it all, to be able to create something great, something something amazing, but also have perfect domestic life with, you know, a woman that he loves and beautiful children, you know, to have it all. That's, if he could somehow accomplish that, all of the glitz and glamour of celebrity life and, and the you know, just following, you know, one beautiful woman after another would all disappear because he's got everything that he needs, I think that's another thing that we're following. If you can add domestic bliss into that magic that he's chasing, then great. But it's also sort of tracing this, what is expected of the of, of the Italian male, of, of, of men in general, is to marry and settle down and have children. And the only reason that Emma even exists as a character in this movie is to sort of demonstrate the horrors of, of settling down with a wife and, and what that represents to to Marcello. Because she's so demanding, wanting to have all of his love and, uh, you know, is, is constantly babying him and giving him, you know, feeding him in the car and trying to be the perfect wife, just to thinking that's what, what will attract him to her. And by, by proving that she can be the perfect wife and, and we're sort of disgusted by her, she's so obsessed with this idea of becoming just a wife and, and, and mother. There's no magic in that you know she's she's placed as, as at such an opposition to all of the dreamlike celebrities uh, you know magical figures in this in this movie you know you step back a bit and you have you you wonder why Marcello would even be with Emma at all like there's no at no point do you see him finding anything in her that he is attracted to but you know she sort of exists as a figure to be this sort of horror vision of domesticity and and the Steiner party presents like it's such a revelation to Marcello because he sees that oh you can have a family and be an intellectual you know Emma is presented as so anti-intellectual and that's part of why he's so disgusted with her Well
0: she's also like representing his past you know and that's the thing that he's trying to get away from it's just too painful for him to actually confront and you know, because they they mention at least in the movie that this is a long term relationship, because she regrets having slept with him without being married to him, and and it's clear that they've been together for a long time. But yeah, no, I mean she doesn't fit into to the person that he wants to be. But then once he really does sort of give up on everything and is unable to achieve everything because everything he wants is doesn't really exist and is kind of just smoke and mirrors. That's when all of that corruption really boils over i mean it's certainly not a good ending for them but the actual ending with that ray i always like maybe there's too much emphasis put on it i mean i like the simplicity like you're saying it's it's an obvious symbolism with the distance of the girl across the beach from where Marcello's standing and and the you know the wind and all of this in between where he can't hear her this chasm between his current self and and his innocence very obvious still very satisfying i think uh, ending. I love him just shrugging as just the perfect <laughs> ending. <laughs> like, top three endings to any movie.
1: That Mastriani shrug.
0: Oh, he's just totally... And, and Mastriani, in general, is just such a brilliant actor. I think he really... When when he has a role like this, where he gets to kind of mine between the, the the said and the unsaid, he's just such a brilliant guy at it. And he has such good comedic timing. And I think a lot of the way that he... His delivery of these things is really, like perfect it's just he's so fucking good he's so talented but i don't know is there is there more i mean you you think this monster represents that there is magic in the world i think that's kind of interesting too is to talk about the natural world as being its own level of magic and and even the fishermen are kind of magical this this idea that these people are actually like working for a goal that they can achieve you know, and, and gain something every single day. And, and as long as you're sort of keeping your expectations at a certain level, your capacity for disappointment doesn't have to be so it's steep, right? Like it doesn't have to always hurt so much to <laughs> like, if you set smaller goals that are achievable, then you know, you, you will be happier because you will get more, you will have more achievements, right? So maybe there's a degree of these sort of like these rich losers that are you know, these wannabes, really, that party, they're not even rich, they're breaking into a rich guy's house, because they all just want to look like they're doing something, they want to look like they're having a party. And they are all these wannabes and these people sort of mingling with people that are actually real, or have to work for a living, likely have have plenty of strife, but are sort of shown at least having a good day of accomplishment.
1: There are a lot of gay men at the party, too, which I think is part of Fellini's sort of symbolism there of of you know the, the feminization of, of Marcello is uh you know he's sort of he's become camp, he's become you know a performer and there's no you know he's he's pure performance and empty otherwise.
0: Yeah, not exactly a pro LGBT. No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, But yeah, yeah. The the monster, though, is like, yeah, it's magic, like this gigantic ray that's been pulled out of the sea that's, I'm sure, bigger than anything that's ever actually been pulled out of the Mediterranean. Yeah, it's also horrifying and disgusting. And it's the, you know, magic, the the seamy side of magic is this impossible creature, this impossible dream, but it's also gross. (laughs) It's also a monster.
0: I love it. It's a big manta ray. Well, it's not really a manta ray. It's some kind of a ray. But there's there's like so much of La Dolce Vita like I we've already spent way too long talking about it. But I feel I could I could spend another two hours talking about La Dolce Vita. It just gets better every single time I watch it.
1: Yeah, there's there is there's magic in this movie for sure. Like every sequence has something to it. Like that just sort of lingers in your in your mind. And, and yeah, so many other things I wanted to bring up. We have talked too long. Like I wanted to talk about that drive-in hospital where he goes into a parking garage when. Emma overdoses, and the like. The nurses come out, and you know, there's he's finally starting to experiment with these sort of impossible sets and these images straight out of his dreams, out of his nightmares, out of these fantastical sketches that he makes in his notebook. You know, combining it with the milieu of his earlier films, and this is La Dolce Vita really is a transitional movie for him and it's it really marks the transition from old Fellini to new Fellini and it happens right at the beginning of the 60s so it's fun to be able to talk about him and uh, and how his how this new Fellini evolved from from the beginning of the 60s to the end of the 60s and i think by the end of the 60s he had sort of gotten where he wanted to go and and everything after that is kind of postscript not that there aren't good movies but he completed his evolution by the end of the 60s. so
0: And the brilliance of it is that it was a smash hit, which I, I think about a lot because I just can't imagine this being a smash hit now. But in a way, perhaps all of reality television has been sprung out of La Dolce Vita. So
1: <laughs> yeah. maybe
0: it still is a smash hit.
1: Just And it's so long to have so many Americans want to go see this really long Italian film just because they're attracted to the glitz and glamour and sex that you couldn't see in Hollywood movies at the time. Yeah, this this movie definitely represents for me a uh, idealized, you know, wishing wishing I'd been a part of the American film audience in the in the '60s.
0: Oh, for sure. But I think, I mean, I I, I can't help but think that the reason why this was so popular, so broadly appealing, is is has to be that people misinterpreted this movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But who knows? Who knows? I mean, we do know, but
1: <laughs> well, that's it. People love seeing decadence and then being
0: and feeling better about themselves.
1: Yeah, and also being like told, "Tut tut, you should not be. You know, this is bad. You shouldn't like this stuff." I think you get it. You get it both ways. You get to enjoy the decadence and then uh, feel better because the lesson is, "Oh, this is this is bad," and it's it's great that my life isn't as glamorous as this,
0: right? The next movie that he made, uh, it has. A, there's a nice flow to all of these movies because we're going to talk about two short films that Fellini made to, to sort of round out this episode that probably didn't need it as far as runtime goes. But the next film was Boccaccio 70. <laughs> out in 1962, which we covered in our Sophia Loren episode because it is, uh, multi- it's an anthology movie with uh, different directors, but the best, by far the best of these shorts in Boccaccio is La Tentazione del Dottor Antonio, which is Fellini's movie, The Temptations of Dr. Antonio. It's just a perfect short film, a <laughs> uh, total like dream logicy short film that is about this uh, Dr. Antonio, who is a local conservative uh, in, I think, Milan, and he goes around and chides everybody for basically, you know, again, this is taking place in this Italian uh, boom of money and capitalism in the early 60s, and he is just freaking out because of the New World Order. He hates the fact that there are all these like half-naked women on magazines that are just displayed prominently at the newsstand. He hates the way that people around him are living their lives. He just is, he goes to church and prays on it every single day. Right across the street from his apartment, there's a park and this giant billboard gets put up for milk, which has a, a giant painting of Anita Ekberg in a slinky sparkly number holding a glass of milk. With the, just a the neon sign that says, bevete più latte, like drink more milk. And which I'm also kind of funny, I don't know, because just because I felt like the 90s were so dominated by got milk commercials, it's like mm-hmm. any milk advertisements are, I don't know, it's kind of amusing to me. But
1: I'm not sure it was as linked to breasts uh, in the 90s. No, it was not. In this episode,
0: <laughs> it was definitely not. And that's, of course, what makes Dr. Antonio really upset is that he just feels that the symbolism is disgusting is disgusting to see this woman with her big boobs on on a billboard that is definitely tamed by our current day standards, but um, is, is horrendous to him. So he starts like trying to, to organize the the city to to remove it, and nobody seems to really understand what he's talking about. He gets church groups in. He calls the fire department. Meanwhile, what's funny is the harder that he tries to get this billboard taken down, the more that Fellini shows us just like entire families or like little children, like happily having a picnic around this billboard or dancing around the billboard. You know, like everyone's enjoying it. Like everyone else in the world is living their lives except for Antonio, who's played by Pepino de Filippo, by the way. So... Long story short, he starts to uh, straight up hallucinate and the billboard starts to talk to him and it says, like, what's wrong? Like, why don't you like me? And that's when the movie just gets absolutely delightful because we get a gigantic Anita Eckberg, billboard sized Anita Eckberg, who comes to life and chases and torments Antonio as he um, struggles to to banish her back to the hell that he thinks she came from. So, I mean, it, this is just, it's just a joy to watch. It's simple. It's straightforward. It has very, very catchy song about drinking more milk. And I found it such a joy to watch, especially now when we have our own reemergence of these sort of, uh, you know, prudish conservatives who are in positions of power and are trying to take people's rights away because it makes them uncomfortable. And that's what the whole film's about.
1: Yeah. It's a little simplistic. I mean, I do really enjoy watching it, but there's not a whole lot to it. It's sort of one simple idea that, uh, that you know, plays out in a fun way. It is, uh, it's is—it's Fellini's first color film, so it's, uh, it's fun to see him play with color for the first time. He really gets flashy at the beginning. You've got all these schoolgirls in yellow uniforms and these nuns in bright red outfits, and, you know, he really... He really goes as far as he as he can to get the most out of his his first color work, and I think uh, you know throughout the '60s the the color in in his films is is really striking and really fun to see. I feel like after the '60s his his palette gets muted. I think because he he's delving into his own past a lot, and the you know the colors of the of the '20s and '30s, I guess, is you know in his head are are much more muted. But uh, his uh, the colors in his 60s movies is, is fantastic. And, uh, and so that was a striking thing about this. I, I liked seeing him, uh, I liked seeing the miniature work that he does with the giant Anita Ekberg in this, because, you know, coming off of our kaiju. <laughs> right episode it is uh, you know fun fun to see that uh, technique used in a very different context you know it's he's making an obvious point about uh conservative values and the you know but again it's him sort of apologizing for his own sexual obsession and you know kind of trying to trying to work out trying to justify that uh, you know we're we're sexual creatures we can't we shouldn't be told that we we can't uh we can't explore that side of ourselves. So
0: I don't see it as an apology, though. It's more of an embrace. I think this is where he's really embracing his horn dog side. Because yeah, it's like <laughs> you can't tell me who to, you know, to lust after. And and I mean, it's also the embodiment of like, you know, she lives rent free in your head, hater. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> that's that's really the whole point. It feels like a it feels like his most political movie in some ways, where he's just really giving a finger to these people that are trying to. Further oppress you and and tell you that, you know, how dare you, uh, you know, feel something that is inherently human.
1: And I'm sure, I mean, it's probably very specifically a middle finger to the outrage that La Dolce Vita caused and the the libertinism and sexual explicitness that's in that movie. People in authority complaining about that. Yeah, it's a a footnote, but a a really fun one. Plus a
0: nod to John Ford in the beginning with the director with the eye patch in the middle of his head.
1: Oh, yeah. After Boccaccio 70, came Fellini's most celebrated film, Eight and a Half. surprised if anybody listening to this podcast hasn't seen it long story short it's about a filmmaker played by marcello mastriani who's obviously supposed to be a very fellini esque type director and he's uh at this fancy health spa and all of his uh you know his producers and everyone he's working with to make his next film which is some kind of alien work. it's never clear what what this idea is he he uh He's he has for his next film, but there he's like there's a constant discussion with with journalists and his producers and his actors and and everyone about oh, what's what's this movie even about? And it's clear becomes clear very quickly that uh, that uh, Guido is uh, is Marcello's name in this really has no idea what this next movie is going to be about. You know, the studio has built this huge like spaceship for him to use in this movie and now he he's realizing that he has no interest in <laughs> in using this like thing that cost the millions of dollars to build for him and uh and so while he's at this health spa his uh his mistress uh played by uh Sandra Milo who
0: who um, was meant to be Fellini's mistress in real life after after her casting as the mistress in this movie so
1: <laughs> Really? Oh, I didn't know that. But uh yeah, I mean, but she's Pretty grotesque. Like there's, he does not, <laughs> he doesn't make her very appealing in this movie. She's just sort of a, you know, over, the, her clothing is all very over the top. She's really gaudy. Guido doesn't seem to like her very much. And it's not really clear why he has invited her out other than, you know, so he can get a piece you know, every night. But he doesn't want to spend any time with her while she's there. He uh, sort of accidentally, on purpose, also invites his wife out to stay with him while he's at this the spa and uh to his surprise she says yes so that causes a a lot of problems but uh i mean you know with that set up we're we're basically dealing with guido and his you know writer's block his, his you know not knowing what he wants to do with his his next movie and got these big party scenes with socialites and and um, you know a lot of dream sequences. The famous one is where he's dressed in a toga with his hat and glasses and he's whipping all the all the women and that he's had fantasies about. And it's you know the, the the most famous scene in any Fellini film. And it's you know he's he's saying goodbye to the women that he's once had fantasies about, but he you know hasn't thought about in in a while. And then you know tearful farewell to the, the old crushes and uh you know he's he's got this harem of, of just all his all his fantasy women and his wife's best friend rosella who is clearly coded lesbian shows up as sort of witness to to this you know disgusting display that that uh that guido is having in his dream of, you know this harem of women but she's also sort of impressed and you know she she's another figure who's sort of demonstrating this. Uh, this combination of of masculinity and femininity be where the ideal lies in in some combination but uh here's another one where there there's the setup there are some of the characters, but what else do you say about what happens in in eight and a half? I've
0: always thought that eight and a half was just really I mean people love to of course talk about like oh it's a the film about a filmmaker making a film and obviously you know like this is people get I think very caught up in the filmmaker meta aspect of it but to me it's always just been like the dreamiest most like wonderful hate self hate mail <laughs> you know it's yeah. just truly like that's what it's really the blueprint for it's not even like being meta it's just this like total breakdown of who Fellini actually is as a human in a way that is just it really i mean it it turns really empathetic and it turns really alienating and if you know how filmmaking works, it's definitely a lot funnier and, and a little easier to understand than being thrown in blind. Cause there's so many characters where like they come and go and you just don't know who they are. And it's definitely taken me multiple viewings to feel like I had a handle on every single part of this. And I still feel like there's more that like I'll maybe understand like later in life, but I don't know.
1: But um See, it's funny. This this viewing, I, I've probably seen this movie I don't know, five times or something, and this was the first viewing where I thought, "Oh, there's really not as much to this movie as I thought there was." It felt a little empty to me this time around, and I felt that a lot of it is this sort of hand wringing of of F- Fellini saying, "You know, you say it's a a a, a self hate letter, but it's also him." It, it is an apology it's him saying well here try and understand it from him trying to get people to understand what kind of a bastard he is right. and you know also apologizing for his uh, you know in, the indulgences in his movies like it it, it constantly br- brings up you know critics telling telling Guido how indulgent he is and it's you know it's Fellini it's so much self analysis in this movie that i got a little irritated with it. And I got irritated with Fellini. It's still an amazing film and needs to be seen many times by anyone who's interested in film, but it just, it it sort of paled this time through, especially after, you know, next to some of these other Fellini films that I hadn't seen as many times and absolutely loved. This one felt, you know, just so masculine. So, so like, here's, here's another demonstration about how, awful and boring Italian men are or something. (laughs) Oh, I
0: think, I mean, I agree with you that it's an apology. It's death. I mean, like, it's so clearly him trying to explain who he is. But that's what I mean is that it's through this lens of him knowing that he's kind of an asshole. And so there is just this, you know, I think there's a line where Guido says that he says happiness consists of being able to tell the truth without hurting anybody. And that feels like really what, a big part of what this movie is about is not the whole movie, but it's really about mm-hmm. struggling with him being truthful to himself, which is full of lumps. It's full of bad shit, you know, and and he knows that, but he wants to be truthful. But he's also just feels awful about the way that he's treating people when he is being truthful, but he can't stop being truthful. And there's something there's something really Wonderful about that in a way where I, I totally hear you on this being such a super hyper-masculine movie, but at the same time, like I, fi- I personally find this just so, I find it so empathetic. Uh And I think it's just because of Fellini having that, that those like higher level of awareness of what he's doing, but also like he, he won't, it doesn't stop him from doing it, which I mean, if I was, you know, his wife, that that would be a big, problem (laughs) but like as him if I'm putting myself in his shoes it's just so empathetic like I love the scene of him in his harem of of every woman he's ever met who he's ever had a crush on basically or or had a in any sort of affair with but it like goes from like his wife to like the hot Danish air hostess with a low voice (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) like just having this room in his head where like this is and everyone treats him like a king and then, you know, he even realizes in his own fantasy world that this is, like, a sexist, awful way to... <laughs> all the women even revolt on him in his in his dreams, you know? Like, it just doesn't even work uh, in, in his fantasy world. So, like, I think there is, like, something very... You know, or, or just, like, this... I love all this stuff with uh, Sarah Gina and, like, coming back to, like, this the first woman that, you know, he ever really was awed by. And it's just this, like, weird homeless... <laughs> Woman who lives on the beach, you know that that he of course got punished for, you know they as the, little kids they paid her to have her dance, you know I mean there's plenty of layers of sexism in that, but it's just such a like it's such a love letter to naivety and nostalgia and and you know and it's it's I don't know it's like I, I love and then I love the way that they they show this and then the writer character. Even comes around and he says like you're being presumptuous. Like this is not a universal ex- experience. <laughs> this is not what people said.
1: I was wondering if that writer was supposed to be Pasolini because I guess P- Pasolini was was involved in the writing of uh, La Dolce Vita in, somehow. And uh, you know, here's this this intellectual uh, who who uh, Guido has asked to help him write his movie who doesn't see eye to eye with way of filmmaking at all, which I, I think is kind of the relationship Fellini had with Pasolini. So, I, yeah, I mean, that was sort of a... I didn't do the research to find out if that was, uh, that was the idea, but this writer was... Uh, maybe he was a Pasolini character.
0: Well, even that writer, you know, like, there's plenty of times where he's trying to basically stop Fellini from indulging, but, like, when he does indulge, it's become such a wonderful movie. I don't know, I'm kind of with you on that, the fact that this feels almost... Emptier, especially versus La Dolce Vita and and subsequent films, this Eight and a Half feels weirdly emptier upon multiple reviewings, uh, multiple rewatching.
1: But Woody Allen has kind of ruined this movie for me a little bit too. I mean, not just Stardust Memories, which I kind of like, but his most recent film, (laughs) Rifkin's Festival, has like recreations of you know scenes from Eight and a Half, and is sort of held up as the greatest film ever made, and, you know, Rifkin's festival is the worst thing Woody Allen's ever ever done. <laughs> and I think it kind of kind of wrecked this movie for me a little bit. Well, that's
0: what's weird about this movie is that you know, as as straightforward as as Fellini was about saying that that you know, I'm I'm a real bastard in this movie, which I don't think is confusing at all. That so many people came away with this from came away from this movie and thought that it was this celebration and, and like permission which I don't I still don't think even Fellini would have agreed with in a way like I think that you know it it certainly didn't stop him to realize that that he was being an asshole but it I don't think that he's wholeheartedly into it either. <laughs> yeah. I think that he has this level of awareness and, and whether or not he he enacted that in his real life doesn't even matter to me. I mean, but there is th- this whole... I think the, the biggest central theme of, of this whole film really is that scene where he finally meets with Claudia Cardinale and, and they take the car off to some weird little uh, suburb. And he, he talks to her about, like, you, you know, could you even choose one single thing and be faithful to it. And that's really like the central theme. It's a central theme about his marriage, about this movie that he's not totally dedicated to even making this film because he doesn't even know what he wants to make. And of course you making a movie, you have to know what you're doing on multiple levels of review before you even, you know, pick up a camera. So, uh, you know, and, and having her passively just reflect that question back to you and saying, I don't know, could you do it? And, you know, he has Guido talking about, like, the character I'm thinking of couldn't. He wants to possess and devour everything. He can't pass up anything. He's afraid he's going to miss something. And and she's like, oh, is that how the film ends? And he says, no, that's how it begins. You know, so there in <laughs> itself is also ref- a reflection of La Dolce Vita uh, again. But it also, it's this idea of of him looking for this salvation and, and trying to get somebody to tell him he's, this is fine. What you're doing is fine. When in fact, what he's doing, even though truthful to himself is, is just like going against the grain of absolutely everything and everyone around him.
1: And here's Claudia Cardinale playing that, that young, innocent, uh, you know, the impossible of uh, impossibility of recapturing your innocence. Once you've been, once you've fallen from grace, once you've Experience sin and you can't ever go back.
0: Yeah, and he, which he directly skewers, as you said before in in this film, that he admits that that's a stupid trope. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to say real quick on the ending to me, I, you know, the ending of this is, I think it can be interpreted as a triumph, but to me, it's always felt like a failure. And I was curious what you thought about the ending of this.
1: Yeah, it, it, it has never once come off for me as anything but well how do i end this movie i guess i'll just bring back every single character who's been in this movie and every single figure from my life every you know every every person i've ever thought about ever and i'll have them you know dance in a circle around this failed movie that i'm trying to to make around this this set that's about to be torn down yeah i don't think i think it's a celebration of nostalgia and memories and all of the people who make up your life, but it's, it's absolutely, you know, a failure in terms of Guido succeeding in, in creating something of value yet, yet again, this is, uh, you know, a, an artist trying to, trying to create meaning again. And I'm not sure, like, I mean, in the sense that, you know, everything that an artist creates is an accumulation of every, you know, all the elements of their life, all the people in their life and all the characters in their movies are, you know, are, are inspired by the people in their own lives. And it's a pretty good culmination of, of what this movie is trying to do. But at the same time, it's always felt to me like Fellini saying, yeah, well, how do I even end this movie? Let, let's make a circus. Let's yeah. let's have a circus scene at the end with, with everyone I know
0: there definitely is a celebratory, but like, that's the thing is like he, the reason he's celebrating is because of the fact that he shattered the ideal of perfection, right? Like he shattered his writer's block by having this movie be canceled by, by walking away from it. And then he has this sort of realization to himself, Guido, where he says, I'm, I'm, I am confusion. I'm not afraid of telling the truth anymore. I'm accepting myself for, for who I am and who I am is like a big mess, you know? and, in 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 the same fantasy, he has a like Louisa accepts him, and it's sort of left open. Like he kind of like defaults back to his childishness and and his naivety and his realization after is,
1: he's like... after he's put her through the most horrible thing that you know he could put her through and make her made her watch the the screen tests for all the actresses who are doing these scenes about you know that are clearly out of out of his own life about uh, you know cheating on his wife and then you know his mistress and. Like it's well, he has he he wants to be able to abuse the people in his life and have them forgive him and celebrate him. And it's it's a little it's a little gross.
0: (laughs) Right. I mean, and then he we have Guido saying like, oh, I get it now. And you're like, you don't get anything. And I can see how like all these toxic dudes saw this and thought like ah, to embrace your truth is is all you need and that's all that matters and and everyone else be damned. But like, I don't even know, I don't even know that this movie draws that conclusion so clearly. It's certainly like the Guido draws that conclusion, but I mean, he's he's just the same as always, you know, it's he, he gets nothing. I mean, he doesn't there's there's no change between the beginning and the ending of this movie with Guido other than his own self satisfaction. And and like that's that in itself is a very satisfying ending for me. It reminds me actually of pretty much the, the same ending as what Mad Men did. <laughs> you know, it's this idea of like circling down the drain, having this epiphany and, and the epiphany is that you're, you know, you're still circling the same drain, you know. It's just <laughs> it's just a failure. It's it's not a triumph, uh, the way that Guido thinks it is, but he,
1: um,
0: he, he maybe is is seeing the pattern, but he's not breaking the pattern.
1: There's still a bit too much of uh Ayn Rand objectivism in it to me. You know, this he's still Guido is still an exceptional man who uh deserves to be, you know, raised above all others even if he's failed in this case and has a lot of self-doubts and uh, Fellini is he's self-flagellating because of all the people he's abused but he still you know deserves to be above everyone else still deserves to be the person in charge and somebody that you should you should focus on
0: which is very tempting for anyone's ego I think yeah well his next film is actually one of my all-time favorites it might be my favorite (laughs) Now La Dolce Vita kind of, I think, is competing with it. But um, it's been my favorite Fellini film, which is Juliet of the Spirits, 1965. think this movie is just so underrated for Fellini so so underrated it was a critical failure it stopped him from making movies for the rest of the 60s pretty much there's one one short film and then we we have another movie after that we're talking about but uh this this was where his dream logic and self-introspection seemed to have finally curdled on him and arguably it's because of the the subject matter he chose I, I I would guess and I think if a movie like this came out now I I would love to see how it would do. You know, just in subject matter, I think it would be way more way more modern than it, than it might have been for I'm a little too progressive for 65 in a way, especially in Italy. But mm,
1: I don't necessarily agree with that, but I'll, uh, I'll 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 let you continue and we'll get into that.
0: We're going to get into it Bart, because I my I clearer than day this time around rewatching this, I realize that there are two movies in, within this movie. It's the movie that Federico Fellini made, and it's the movie that Giulietta Messina made. And that's always been what I liked about this movie, but it's just, it feels even clearer to me watching it now. But so uh, this is a movie, of his only 60s movie that actually stars Giulietta Messina, who is, of course was his wife, long suffering wife, who, uh, you know, Fellini had put in all of his early hits and, and movies. The plot is that she is a housewife she's in a marriage with Giorgio who is played by uh, Mario Pisu, and uh, he is just this like businessman who's always traveling for work he actually work. I think he works for fashion there was something like PR for fashion or something and our our introduction to this man is that we see Julieta preparing for their 15-year anniversary she's expecting her husband to come home she's you know gets the the two uh, maids to help her make a special dinner she dresses everything is thought of every detail is worked out to perfection and she turns off the lights as she hears her husband coming home and he stumbles in and he sees what's happening and he goes oh shit I forgot and then suddenly this crowd of his friends descends upon the house and they're all like riffraff people I mean like like weird weird artists and mystics and all of these people that you know are, are part of the, you know, the La Dolce Vita, the the, the beautiful, sparkling people. And, and um, Julietta, of course, totally doesn't match with these people. She's like this, this upper class housewife. Um, and, you know, we see her as she says to herself, like, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. And as she tries to go around and be a good hostess to everybody. So that's kind of what the whole movie is about is, is just seeing uh, Julietta as she deals with the uh, fallout of having this husband. And, and, in this party, they set up a seance. Julieta feels like she, she gets in touch with these two spirits, which is Iris and, and Fanny, the two spirits that, that are whispering to her, and it kind of, like, opens something up in her. From then on, the, the rest of this film is she's sort of following her on her own spiritual journey. She uh, gets brought by a friend to see this mystic who is only in town, uh, like, once every several years. And this Bhishma is the name of this mystic.
1: Neither a man nor a woman. Yes,
0: this androgynous holy person. And even that is like, you know, this mystic sort of tells her, you know, love is your religion, Juliet, you know, or Julietta, and your husband is God, and you are the priestess of his cult. And, you know, it's sort of like telling him, like, you know, we I, I can see that you're unhappy. And, and uh, you know, like, that this is... You know, you have to pursue more more mysticism in order to to solve this riddle within your own life. She ends up stumbling into her neighbor Susie, uh, her house, which is like kind of this bizarre pleasure dome of a of a you know swinging sixties pad, where Susie is um, has she has this like fiance who's this like rich Arab man who we see for f- all of five seconds, but meanwhile she spends all of her days sleeping around and and doing what she wants in pursuit of pleasure. And and she's played again by Sandra Milo, which is definitely a questionable casting in, in a movie that's starring your wife and about how you're cheating on her all the time and how miserable it makes her. The film ends in this sort of glorious unraveling of Julietta's mind. As we see all of these flashbacks to her past and all of the, the trauma that she had as a child in regards to catholicism and sexuality and uh, trust and faithfulness she there's also this sort of parallel story of her grandfather who left his wife and the whole family in pursuit of of love
1: and her best friend as a kid who killed herself out of love
0: right and it's just a it's just a really brilliant thoughtful movie with this like very strong interesting complex and layered female character as a lead which is just so rare for 60s cinema and and definitely goes into my theory that the only way that that these women especially in this era the only way to get a good female lead is to have your husband be the director but uh what did you think about this movie before i i get into all of my theories
1: i love this movie this is one i i guess i'd only seen it once before so this was it was almost you know it was Maybe the freshest of the of the movies that we watched for this episode for me. And uh I I enjoyed it more, I think, this time than I did the last time. I used to not appreciate Fellini's flights of fancies, or at least the really, you know, baroque ones where I'm not really sure what he's trying to do, you know, really like a lot of grotesque, carnivalesque people in them showing up and I'm not sure why, and just, you know, sort of his indulgence that he uh he mocks himself for an eight and a half. Like when he gets too indulgent, I, I used to not like that at all. And which is why I'm not, I wasn't as interested in his later films. I like the, when he, he stayed a little closer to reality, but this movie gets really pretty, pretty insane and, and, you know, nightmarish or, or dreamlike. And uh, he's, he's definitely not holding your hand the whole time. And, and, explaining to you what all of these creatures who show up and all what all of these, these scenes and settings are all about. It's, you know, purely just he's tapped into something in his mind and he's putting it on screen. And I I think I have so much more of an appreciation for that now than I used to with Fellini. And it makes me want to go and watch some of his later films that I never bothered with because I like that. I'm, you know, enjoyed it so much this time around. But yeah I mean this movie it also you know made more sense to me this time. I did figure out what it was all about and what some some of these flights of fantasy were all about but um at the same time i was I was a little bummed well, first of all, it's you know here's this rich housewife with these maids and you know everything she could possibly want in her life and oh poor, poor little rich girl you know her husband is cheating on her it, it's i find. I find that figure a little hard to to re- to relate to or feel a lot of sympathy for because it's like oh you his wealth was probably a big reason why you married him in the first place and just in terms of of uh you know being a sympathetic character I have that problem with with Julietta but it's she's also played by Julietta Messina who's got the most open face of anybody who's ever been in the movie so you can't help but sympathize with her and be on her side so she's just so easy to love that you know once you once you get past her obscene wealth she's easy to relate to but it's also my biggest problem with this movie is it's Fellini saying okay honey i'm an asshole so you you know stop stop basing all of your 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 happiness on me you know go out and find your own happiness like obviously i'm too much of a bastard to for you to rely on me so uh yeah here here's a movie about you finding out how to be happy outside of our marriage. And, uh, she presents her with this, you know, this handsome Spaniard who you think, Oh, you know, she clearly has a little, you know, is attracted to him. And you think, Oh, is that the answer? She like has an affair with this guy. And, and no, that's not what Julieta wants really. And there, you know, there, there are other young, you know, sexy men that she meets through, uh, through Sandra Milo, through Susie. And, uh, you know, she has plenty of opportunities to just sort of sleep with these these young, sexy men, and she's like, "No, that's that's not. I want love, not sex." And and you know, so that's also Fellini saying, "Oh, oh, Julietta, you should sleep around," and her saying, "No, that's not really." You know, it's, it's Fellini constructing an out for his wife, like or for himself, and you know, constructing a world for his wife to be happy in because he can't provide for her what she what she needs.
0: That's exactly it. That's exactly it.
1: That came off as a bit of a negative in this movie that I otherwise love. I that the whole reason for it existing kind of bothers me.
0: I fully agree with you. Well like what well, that's 100% the movie that Fellini was making. Like Fellini's making a movie about a woman who's discovering herself and allowing herself to open up to to the world and and shed her fears and hang-ups and by discarding her original dream and that sense of normality and conformity that she strives to achieve, right? Like the, the movie Fellini's making, in his mind is like a feminist masterpiece.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but the movie that Julietta's making is just pure heartbreak. And it's completely through her acting. And, and she changes the entire movie, even though what plays out is the beats that Fellini set out The way that she plays them, she just transforms everything. It's this movie, it's about a woman who's so desperate to cling on to what she wants that she's willing to hang on to this just tiny shred of it, if that's the only thing that she can get out of it. Like the movie that that Juliet is making here, it's like a a woman who's just so desperate to believe in love that she'd rather hold on to that, that delusional shred of what she had and what she needs then moving on and it's just so painful and it's just so sad and that's what really makes her so empathetic to me like whether or not you know rich or not it's like somebody who just as you said unable to to embrace you know everything that the world has for her and and it's because of trauma you know like it goes back to just like and that was one of the things that that this movie really got across clearly to me this time is the way that Fellini kind of is viewing catholicism and i think religion in general as as just shared trauma more than it is you know like <laughs> a rules for living right he kind of like flips it on its head and uses that grandfather character to, to also like reinforce that you know this sort of libertine character that is is living his life and it's free of all of this nonsense, like able to discard this stuff. But like, the, again, the story that julietta's is telling is like, what if you can't? I mean, what if you what if you can acknowledge all of this stuff, but you really can't move on? And none of her spirituality is even that it's just a, a delusion. It's really it comes across as as a, a placeholder and just something for her to hold on to so that she doesn't lose her mind. And the fact that they th- these voices start to appear when Something really traumatic happens to her, like her husband just completely forgetting their anniversary and not even and just letting all of his friends show up anyhow and run the place and having no care and attention to her. You know, he he sort of makes it up for her, you know, several days later and with a gift as he's then planning a vacation with his mistress (laughs) Who she's slowly finding out about.
1: I do love how the husband kind of barely exists in this movie. Like, even when he's in the scene, he's so, he's like cast in right. shadows. Like, he could he could be played by Marcello Mastriani because you, you know, barely even see his face in this movie. And he's got sort of the Marcello's hair. You know, it almost feels like Fellini would have cast Marcello if it, if it was more of a major role. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's that shadowiness of, of the way you know the way the husband is presented is is Fellini saying you know take me remove me from your life you know where <laughs> pretend i don't exist what would you do if i you know if i didn't exist how, how would you find your happiness and i don't know bugs me a little <laughs>
0: i mean and it's also within the context of of you know italy you could not get a divorce period and again, just even being, you know, a woman in, in the sixties and getting a divorce in America was, was, you know, super scandalous. And so, yeah, like how how do you sort of deal with this and how do you learn how to live this way? I mean, it's it's just it's interesting and, and again, I think just the way that Julietta is is interpreting the, the way that she filters everything that she is given adds so much more life and depth to to this character and this part. Than Fellini even realizes, and I, I wonder if it's like something he maybe realized in post. <laughs> but mm-hmm. otherwise, it's I and, and all of the dream stuff, the way that those those nuns start slipping in on the corners of the screen, or that you know the, these sort of bizarre tableaus where people's faces are cut off or peeking into the frame. That stuff is so freaking perfect. Like I, it makes <laughs> me so excited because it looks exactly like I swear to God, like that is how. My dreams look, you know, like, he, and they're so unsettling. The, the the creepy little girl, especially when she comes back as, as this sort of horror figure for Julietta and the way that it, the editing between these scenes and the, the way that this, this like unraveling is happening while Julietta is in this like astroturfed, perfectly manicured garden. And yet all of this creepiness is just like bubbling over constantly. Like visually, this movie is just like so freaking brilliant.
1: Yeah, really impressed me this time around. Every, you know, and it all works. Nothing feels like it's not there for a reason. And that, I think that was sort of my problem with some, of his more outrageous visuals, but uh, it all works in this one. The one question I have, and I'm you know going to go back to the domesticity angle that, that I brought up in La Dolce Vita, is Fellini seems to be falling into this sort of, italian male stereotype where okay my wife is is to be the mother is is there for to be the mother of my children and my mistress is for sex and that's in in these three like clearly autobiographical features you know his first three features in the 60s they're dealing with this issue of you know a man cheating on his wife and why do i do that why do why do we do that he is playing with this virgin and whore thing that is you know omnipresent in italian cinema but children aren't addressed at all in this film. Like, it's addressed in La Dolce Vita with, with Steiner's children. But otherwise, I guess because Fellini didn't have children with Giulietta Messina, as far as I know, maybe he did. They had but. a
0: child who died for after a month.
1: Uh, well. But, uh, you know, the, the whole mother aspect of the virgin horror dichotomy doesn't show up in Eight and a Half or Giulietta the Spirits. And... It sort of seems like that's missing a major part of that whole trope. <laughs> How do you be the, the Virgin Mary, mother of God, mother of all, if you don't have any children? It's so pointedly not addressed in this film that I feel like it must be addressing that in some way.
0: I mean, there's a, there's her uh, nieces galloping around.
1: Yeah. And her own mother, like her relationship to her own mother and her sisters is is a big part. Of this she's got a, a younger beautiful sister who uh, you know at, at some point her Julieta's husband asked to played by uh, Silva Cucina asked her her younger beautiful sister to pretend to be his wife for some some uh, you know South Americans he had to entertain sometime and you know her older sister is uh, being supportive of her finding out if her husband's having an affair and you know takes her to a, a private detective and that's sort of a one of the more plot based aspects of this fairly Plotless movie, and then and then it, it's sort of showing her relationship to her own mother, which is really conflicted, and she can't really connect to her mother. So there is a mother and child aspect to this, like Julietta being a mother to these her niece and nephew. Like it never feels quite she's nurturing, but there there's not much of a mother child connection there. I feel more of it when she's talking about her own you know sisters and mother, but I I also feel like why isn't there more about being you know a woman's function in life is, is uh, you know, to have children. And it seems... Well,
0: don't, you like, think Fellini really mm. thought that? I don't know if he did. I think that, like, to to buy into um, domestic bliss, I, I think, doesn't even come that consciously to people. I think it's something where it's just so ever-present that you feel guilty if you're not doing it, you know? Like, and and I think that kind of... If you're just talking about, like, what the root of Julietta's desires are... I mean, like, I think number one, just like she clearly is happy to have one love the way that her husband is not. He's, you know, does not believe in, in monogamy, <laughs> uh, but maybe also is too guilty to admit it. So,
1: but yeah, I mean, maybe it's her own trauma as a child that makes Julietta and her own conflicted relationship with her mother that makes Julietta not really, you know, think about necessarily want children of her own. But it's extremely implicit if it's there at all. Like it doesn't it doesn't get addressed, and I felt like that was that was an area that I I was looking for a little detail and and didn't get any because it very much is is saying Fellini is saying my wife she should be at home she should find her you know her own hobbies but she her role is to be at home and be my wife and and you know be there when I come home from from, you know, jet setting around the world and and spending my time with all these beautiful people. My wife, she she belongs in the home. I don't know, it's just so much about the role of women and what they, you know, what they shouldn't, shouldn't do and what their fantasies are like. And that, uh, that, that I thought motherhood went a little surprisingly unaddressed. I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I just want to know. Maybe it's not a problem with this film. I just want to know.
0: I mean, I feel like I could come up with plenty of interpretations of of why it is or isn't. But I don't know. I, I guess it didn't bug me too much. It, it felt like it, it to me, the whole movie feels like it's really more about just the dynamic of their relationship. And, and as you said, Fellini giving her permission to you know, explore herself and, and do, you know, he's sort of, it's, it's, it's kind of a patronizing film for him because he's saying like, do this in her work and you'll come out better, you know, and, and like I did <laughs> and mm-hmm. Julietta's saying, fuck you. <laughs> She's mm-hmm. saying I've done plenty of it, you know, and, and uh, guess what? I still know what I want. And in fact, she probably knew more of what she wanted than, than he ever did. Um, the problem is that she knows what she wants and and he 's the person that she wants and uh it 's just not mutual, maybe he wants her in in a in that sort of guilt way or or but he doesn 't want her in his truthness you know like in his he he wants her as a wife because he wants a wife and he likes her and he loves her, but it 's not enough for him
1: well, this is definitely uh of of the films that we watched for this episode, this is the one I'm most, most interested in going back to because I think there's there's a lot in it to, to to look at and to take apart, and it wasn't exactly the film that I remembered seeing when I saw it last time. I'd like to revisit it.
0: And also a note here about just how Nina Roda did the score for all of these movies. All of this just, like, iconic shit. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well yeah, I mean eight and a half in particular is like so much of that score was stolen for Pee Wee's Big Adventure that I like it's I, I I I can now no longer distinguish the eight and a half score from the Pee Wee's Big Adventure <laughs> score. And so it's just so lives in my subconscious. But uh yeah, the you Nina know, Rota scores are all fantastic and distinct i feel like each each of these films he's doing something a little bit different i love that 60s organ in in all of these uh, italian film scores like piero piccioni but uh you know, nina, nina rota's got uh you know, he's got that carnivalesque sort of sound that he plays with but he also is you know can be pretty majestic and uh you know and symphonic and uh these fellini films would be a completely different experience without the nina rota scores
0: all of these '60s scores too are like I actually I genuinely sit down and listen to.
1: Yeah, well, especially the next one, right? Didn't you say that uh, Fellini's short in uh, in *Spirits of the Dead* is one of your favorite records to listen to? Well, there's like
0: there's one good song in in this, but yeah, Toby, damn it. Yeah, Spirits of the Dead from 1968. This is a another anthology movie. So this is another short film, horror anthology, because everything's meant to be based on stories by Edgar Allan Poe. The other directors in this movie are Roger Vadim and Louis Moll. I actually liked, I kind of like this movie, This all of these shorts overall, but they're definitely varying quality. And Fellini's is definitely the best of all of them. But there is a def. There's an amazing cast in this. Throughout, we get like Bridget Bardot and Elaine Delon and and Jane Fonda, Peter Fonda, in the same movie. Um, but none of the none of those people are in Fellini's movie, except for Terence Stamp, Cinema Sixty favorite, just because of Modesty Blaise. Uh, Toby Dammit is a short film about. It's a movie about this actor who shows up in Italy, and that is Terence Stamp playing this famous uh, English actor, Toby Dammit. And he shows up in Italy to make a a Catholic Western, (laughs) which sounds great to me. We just sort of follow him. I mean, there's this brilliant scene through the airport where we're seeing this kind of moving tableaus of of everybody who stops to stare at him as he walks through the airport. And everyone's like perfectly art-directed and all of this, like, really, like, colorful lighting. Terrence Stamp, in general, looks like he's a vampire. He looks, like, totally drugged out and out of it, sucked dry by, by being famous. And we kind of follow him as, as he's hanging out with the beautiful people. He gets interviewed for television. He's this huge, massive star. He starts talking about how he keeps seeing, having visions of the devil who comes to him as this little girl. I don't know, do I I spoil the whole thing? I mean, it's Edgar Allan Poe, so you know someone's dead at the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, he basically follows his his visions until he um, tries to drive off of a bridge and gets himself decapitated. And that's the whole movie. And it's great. It's brilliant. It has this amazing soundtrack. As I said, every single part of this is just so beautifully art directed and put together. It's just sort of stunning to watch, even if you're not paying attention to to what you're seeing, and and it's it's simple. I I thought maybe there's more to it. I, I think you like this a bit more than I did, but it is, I thought, just pretty straightforward about fame and and the downsides of it, and uh, you know this idea that he is continuously being sucked dry by everybody around him until he is just so spiritually bankrupt that he'd rather follow this vision of of the devil and and thinks that. I can do everything i've I've survived all of this I'm so important, and uh you know the the world sets him straight feels a little bit also like almost like a James Dean kind of a thing happening here
1: the decapitation for or no that's james that james. was mansfield Did they both get decapitated Mansfield got decapitated.
0: no, but just like a death like you know the a, an upcoming star yeah. death in a car
1: yeah yeah I mean my memory of this film was a you know descent into hell except when the film starts he's already in hell like there, are are red filters on everything like when they're landing the plane the airport like everything is red like he clearly is already in hell and he's just sweaty and looks like crap and um and i I mean i think some of that is supposed to be the heat of of rome and and just coming to italy and you know never really wanted to come in the first place but uh you know he's promised a fancy car so uh so he came and uh, and just, you know, getting off the plane in the sweltering heat is, is too much for him. I mean, I think the the idea is that, you know, all three of the films in Spirits of the Dead are about these three people who have already gotten to the point of Marcello at the end of La Dolce Vida. They may have at some point had a dream, but they've achieved it and they've, they've sort of gotten to some culmination point where, you know, this is it. This is this is where I'm going to be and, and my, uh, you know, my... My choices have led me to this life of decadence and and uh, meaninglessness and uh, and where do I have to go from here? But uh, but straight to hell. And I and I love how in Toby Dammit, which is like pure like from be- beginning to end, is just pure dream logic. Juliet of the Spirits is is very close to being you know beginning to end dream, but this is like nothing but but Fantasia, and it's glorious. Like I I really feel like this is Fellini's indulgence in just putting whatever crosses his mind onto the screen. And it's, it's amazing to look at a lot of this. The film is at this quote unquote Italian Oscars ceremony, which I mean, I, <laughs> whatever this is, there are, there aren't that many people there. It's really like, you know, a lot of beautiful people and a lot of like back padding and uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of glitz and glamor, but there's, it doesn't seem like it's uh you know, could possibly be the kind of big deal that the Oscars is because it's we cut to Toby Dammit watching the whole ceremony, like drinking and and falling asleep. And uh but he's like next to these, you know, boxes of uh, you know, empty bottles and, and there's there's this sort of trashiness to this this whole event that's uh juxtaposes this I don't know, maybe it's just another Fellini symbol, like these these boxes of empty bottles is showing what, what kind of you know, how how Toby Dammit has has turned to alcohol as his only, uh, you know, recourse for, for the the dreams that he, uh, you know, once had, turning to turning to shit.
0: Which is then when he gets into his car and we go into full Clockwork Orange driving sequences. A,
1: a good, you know, the last third of this movie is is uh, Terrence is Toby Dammit in his Ferrari like driving around Rome and then like. Somehow getting going out, you know, to the neighboring rural areas of Rome and getting lost and not being able to find his way back. And it's just a lot of him you know, driving down these streets and turning around and going really fast. And like not, all the people on the streets have been replaced by mannequins, and uh, he he runs into some of them. But it's, uh, I mean, that's a lot of fun to to watch. But it's also huge, I had think, to have
0: been a huge inspiration for David Lynch, and also that that one Radiohead music video. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this as uh, it's hard not to link Fellini and David Lynch because of the the dream, you know, how how they both seem to tap directly into their dreams and put it on the screen. But Toby Dammit is is definitely it seems like of all of Fellini's films, probably the biggest influence on Lynch. But um, even more satisfying than this you know, driving sequence, um, that's the most memorable part of the film is, um, is how Toby Dammit has already sort of given up on the life of a celebrity. And in his interviews, it, he's just got this, like, I don't give a shit attitude. And will just say any outrageous thing that crosses his mind. He also has to get up on stage at the Italian Oscars and make this speech. And he, he talks about, uh, you know, he does a little a Shakespearean soliloquy because that's what's asked of him. But then he just, you know, sort of goes off on how it's all bullshit. And he, he sort of destroyed his own life and, but uh yeah, it's this sort of doing whatever the hell I want, no matter what the consequences. It sort of ties all three of these post stories together in, in Spirits of the Dead in the in the first one, the the Roger Vadim one, which is totally boring, but it does have Jane Fonda and Peter Fonda playing potential lovers. So um, so Vadim sh- Yeah, which I'm sure Roger got a, yeah. a big big chuckle out of. But Yes, Jane Fonda is just a sadistic baroness who um, has orgies and and, uh, murders people and is, you know, does whatever the hell she wants and finds the emptiness in that. And the the second one, the Louis Mal one, is Alan Dillon is just this this bastard who um, is just a bully and will abuse people and, you know, just has managed to get his way in life just by being a bully and taking charge of every situation and just being you know, awful to everyone and, you know, scaring them into, you know, letting him do whatever he wants. And he's, he's tortured by his doppelganger who shows up and also has the same name, William Wilson. And uh, all three of these films are sort of about the, the dissatisfaction of, of following your, your, your worst impulses, the consequences of that. So I think as far as anthology films go, it's one of the better ones. I think if the Roger Vadim one wasn't so Vadim-ish and just like trying to be outrageous and you know having Jane Fonda in really skimpy like superhero costumes and uh, throwing a lot of sex in and thinking that automatically makes his movie interesting, that this would, uh, this would rank a little higher for me. I actually thought the Louis Mal film, which is the one that most people complain about, I think, it's being a little dull. I liked it. I, that totally worked for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jenna was was totally infatuated watching watching Yeah, La
0: being a hot serial killer. Yeah. Hell yeah.
1: <laughs> Absolutely watch worth watching for the Fellini, but I think it actually works altogether better than most of these anthology films do. Finally, in nineteen sixty nine, Fellini uh Came back from his disappointment and self doubt after the the poor reception of Juliet of the Spirits, maybe the you know Toby Dammit, his success in creating something a little bit different, a little bit you know something that that was not quite like anything else he'd done before, sort of gave him the confidence to to jump into this adaptation of uh, Petronius's. Well, I don't know if it's an unfinished work, but they're only um, you know it's a it's a Roman novel. That we only have sections of, so um, and Fellini's adaptation of this novel is, you know, it doesn't hide the fact that there are big gaps in the narrative, so it just jumps all around. So it it sort of um, works well with the dream logic that uh, that Fellini likes to put in his films, or at least at this point in his career, he he absolutely embraced hundred percent. But it's yeah, it's set in ancient Rome during the time of Nero. Wait, so. did you
0: say the name Sertoricon?
1: century AD our, our main character is Encolpius, young beautiful man who um is furious with his best friend uh a a skilled not going to be able to uh pronounce these names but uh because he has um uh, run off with his slave boy that he's in love with and then sold him to an actor and so uh, we we see Encolpio um go to uh to to get his uh his slave boy back from this actor and so right away we're introduced to themes of uh pedophilia and uh and you know on the stage that uh, he goes to we see you know a slave's hand get cut off just you know purely in the name of entertainment uh for this you know group of nobles and so we're in this like totally immoral decadent roman world that has no resemblance to our own world, or almost no resemblance. I was thinking this as I was watching this film, um which this this is the second time i'd seen this film, and i actually didn't actively didn't like it the first time I saw it you know back in the nineties or whatever. I loved it this time, and a big reason that I liked it so much was that this world seems so alien, like the customs of these people just seem to have like no connection to anything that human beings do now, like these are all human type creatures, but they are doing such bizarre things and have these like bizarre customs. And it really felt like going to you know it felt like a science fiction movie. Like this here's this is this totally alien culture that does things completely differently than we do them. And I have actually never seen a sci-fi film where it's it's so successfully like captured a culture that's so completely alien to us. I mean, it's...
0: It made me think of The Color of Pomegranates.
1: <laughs> that's true. That, I mean, that. Yeah, I'll, well, we have to do The Color of Pomegranates again, too. But it turns out that uh, reading about Satyricon afterwards, that Fellini himself called called it a science fiction movie set in the ancient past. So, you know, there it was definitely part of his intention to make all of this feel really alien and bizarre and... It does, and I was totally hooked when this movie was made. I can't imagine there was anything at all that had been made before that resembles it in any way. It just feels totally. I think coming up through watching Fellini's film sequentially, getting to this film, you see how he kind of built to it little by little, you know, to create this impossible fantasy world that actually, you know, surprisingly was you know at least partially based on you know, 2000 year old customs and, you know, actual humans were doing these things, but he's managed to like, just the way he, you know, the costuming and the makeup with all, all of these characters, you know, the face painting and just the, you know, these, these celebrations, like everything is just so bizarre and grotesque and horrible. And, but it it also doesn't come off as, I mean, there's, there is something nightmarish about it because all sorts of, you know, awful things happen. There Esculpio and uh and Escalidus <laughs> get uh captured by this in, in, invading tribe and uh, become slaves and have to battle for their you know and it's because nothing really happens for a particular reason in this it's just a series of of vignettes and you're with big jumps in the narrative and later they they go to this um, hermaphroditic oracles uh, cave and they Kill his keeper in order to steal the their hermaphrodite so they can sell it and but there's you know there's all sorts of like immorality things that are you know go totally against what's acceptable in society now that I feel like it's portrayed in such a non-judgmental way in this film like we still manage to want to follow the adventures of of the main character and we're somehow still on on his side even when he's you know murdering and and having sex with little boys and, and doing lots of, lots of really awful stuff. Uh, we want him to, to succeed. We want him to get out. We want him to like, sort of find his, his own kind of freedom and to you know, get out of whatever terrible situations he's, he's gotten himself into. So I feel like there is a somehow Fellini has managed to be really non-judgmental about the, the lack of morality in this world that's, that he's captured on film you know, the the Catholic interpretation of this film is that, you know, this is a society without morals, without God. And, and, you know, this is what humanity would, would be like without God, a higher power to, to be answerable to. I don't, I don't get much religious conviction coming from Fellini as far as this film is concerned. It, it, I feel like he's really excited about the, the immorality and you know the possibilities. I mean, in in a sense, I, I don't know. I've been talking too much. I don't know if I need to go into the the plot too much. It's just a series of adventures. He has a, you know, he ends up in a labyrinth with a minotaur, and his reward for defeating the the minotaur by you know admitting his weakness and inability to fight him is um, he he has to have sex with this prostitute in the middle of the arena where and he he can't get it up, and then he has to go and and go to some Witches to get his erection back, and it's it's you know a series of of things like that, like really sort of dirty, naughty, like both not very human, but also like connected to humanity and our own experiences in a way that I I just found fascinating. And I, I this movie is so unlike anything else that I was I totally fell for it this time around. What uh, what do you think of satiric? This
0: was the first time that I'd ever seen it which was exciting because this was something I had put off for ages and not for a specific reason, but definitely saw the mixed reviews of it. Um, as far as contemporary reviews of it, I think it was pretty well received, like one at con and everything when it came out. Um, but you know, as it, as it ages and everything that is exciting and, and taboo breaking for 1969, of course does not, is, is not so much in 2000, whatever, but, um, The thing that really struck me about it, and I feel like I'll have to see it multiple times. I really liked it. I thought it was great. I I was also just really impressed by all the visuals of this again, like the way that he leans into tapping into this sort of dreamlike logic, but he really mixes in a lot of like stage direct design in this. And and that really works for me. It felt very Ken Russell, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which was really wonderful. The way that he incorporates all of these faces—I mean, just the the sheer amount of bizarre-looking people in this—is also just delightful. I I really love Fellini's love of people and, and humans, and I think a lot of that comes through. And you're talking about how he's very non-judgmental. I think that that really is just his love of of humanity is kind of what's shining through. And I and you're—it's interesting that you're bringing up Catholicism too, because in in a way, I kind of feel like one of the stories and maybe we can talk about this after but one of the stories of fellini through the 60s is is kind sort of him losing his religion <laughs> he still he still has the hang-ups mm. from it he still sort of again he views it as a trauma and, and something that in a way is almost brings people together as a trauma more than it does as uh, a gu- guidance or you know some sort of like way to live but um this movie I, I totally agree with all of the, you know this this calling it a, a science fiction and and uh, everything that is strange is absolutely delightful in it. But to me, what it what really comes back to is like he spends all of his other films. Fellini spends all of his films digging into the ego and the super ego. All right, it's all about you know who am I and and like my morality and and what is what is my set of morality and being self critical. And this is like the one movie of the 60s where he really digs into like the id you know the sort of primal like what what does it mean to be human and that's kind of what makes it so delightful to me I I just all of these like cutaways to these people just sort of like doing things with their body and like making sounds and movements and like it's like the whole film is so unhinged and, and unfiltered and and grotesque but real but real you know it doesn't feel like he's making fun of anything as you said it feels like he's just more like mining these like primitive impulses and putting them on display and kind of showing this society where impulsiveness was celebrated and incorporated and and clearly has such a different set of values than, than modern society, and, and putting that forth is is not a good or a bad thing. And I would say, if anything, you do get a, a hint of Fellini being like, this isn't great, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> you know, he's not really, he's definitely not celebrating it because like, I guess this is part of the text too, but it's like, you know, obviously, like it's a it's showcasing all of these people in, in a not-so-great light, uh, even if he, he's allowing them to... Uh, sort of move within this world without judgment free there's still judgment on the sloth and gluttony and and lack of self-reflection and self-awareness and and the only people that are shown sort of beautifully are these like there, there's a show there's one segment where these wealthy noble people like set all of their slaves free and pack their children up and then kill themselves rather than be uh, under the rule of this new emperor or whatever, and and so like those people are shown in sort of beautifully, and they have this beautiful death, but they're a bit above it all. They're they're not the ones who are. They're this is clearly not an impulsive thing. This is like a well thought out, planned reasoning. So there there's a bit of judgment,
1: <laughs>
0: but it's very yeah. frank about homosexuality, which I thought was kind of interesting for '69.
1: Yeah, and also interesting for Fellini who. I don't know he has not shied away from showing from having homosexuals in his films, but he is so like his his films have been so rampantly heterosexual at least in terms of the impulses of his protagonists that uh, it does you know it makes you think about what uh, what fellini's uh sexuality might be and what uh, you know why he he threw himself so gleefully into this extraordinarily bisexual world and and i think you know a lot of it is just following the id if it moves fuck it sort of idea and and the appeal of that following your you know whatever you know base motivations you might have and just it's you know, it connected to toby dammit in that way and the, and the spirits of the dead i mean all of his films really is about about following your impulses and then feeling guilty about it but in this world there's it's it's pretty much guilt-free. Like no, no one, no one feels any guilt about anything. And I think that's that might be part of what was so freeing for Fellini with this film is that not having to have any hand wringing. And, and frankly, I I was relieved to not be able to see Fellini himself as a character in this film after going through all these other films where he's just sort of self-flagellating and you know talking about what a bastard he is. He's not you know other than allowing us to tap into his his dreamscape and you know see what what kind of horrific erotic uh, you know bizarre images he has in his head there's not he's not talking about himself as a person at all in this film i kind of enjoyed that about it after after all of these others we also for this episode watched a, a little uh, hour long feature that uh, that Fellini produced for television Actually, American television, because it's, it was shot silently, <laughs> you know, without sound, as all of Fellini's films this period were, and then dubbed later. Like, that was how, you know, Italian cinema at the time, no direct sound. Um, but this one was all... People that he's filming in this semi-documentary are, uh, you know, speaking English and, and, you know, Italian, but then if they're speaking Italian and they're being dubbed in Italian and then somebody's translating what they're saying. But... uh And it's just, it's, um, you know, partially behind the scenes of the making of Satiricon. You see some of the casting he's doing for the film. And it's also, you know, Giulietta Messina is there kind of talking about how Fellini loves to feed homeless people at the uh, Coliseum and, you know, shows a clip that was cut out of Knights of Cabiria that's uh, kind of about that. And Marcello Mastriani is in there as himself and he's he's even more clearly playing a version of himself and not actually. Right.
0: He's like surrounded by all these people that are doting on him and he's like wearing a big fur coat. It's definitely like totally, (laughs) totally bullshit.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So it's sort of a, um, I mean, it's directed by Fellini himself and he, you know, he, he put this together and it seems it, it definitely has an afterthought feel to it. Like he didn't exactly know what he was doing, but he shot a bunch of stuff and, Sort of getting at what he's uh, maybe because he couldn't put himself into um, Satyricon as as much as uh, he might have wanted to. He he paired it up with this this little TV special that uh, where he gets to sort of talk about what he's all about and why he makes films. And I I didn't find it that revealing, but there are also some interesting little bits in it, and it's worth worth watching and worth bringing up in this episode. But
0: you know what's refreshing about it? It's like it's actually a love letter. It's a love letter to, to all of his actors and everything that he's doing for once. Like the, there's a, no none of his self-critical stuff. It's just about how much he appreciates everyone around him. So it's kind of it's fun for that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No matter how much how self-critical Fellini is and, you know, how much his movies are about himself in every movie he makes, he definitely gets across how much he loves people and loves how, you know, People's differences and loves the you know just just faces and you know just the the variety of life and that's sort of what inspires him more than anything making making films and uh, it's nice nice to see it stated so directly in in this little featurette
0: and that's Fellini
1: yeah and I think the sixties you know in a lot of ways it's his peak his two most famous films La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half were made in this decade. But it also it shows a progression, like it, it it is is this decade is clearly like shows a transition from what he was doing in the 50s to the 70s, and uh, I don't know. Do you 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 brought it up first? Do you want to talk about uh, the the evolution in in these films?
0: Well, I just think that you really see him progressively losing his mind from beginning to end. <laughs> I mean, but it's kind of glorious for it because he's very open about it we we love uh, both of us love uh I- I which is of course 1959 so we couldn't talk about it here but that really is the beginning of this this journey for Fellini this an inner journey is reflecting back on how things were how you know the the small town mentality and and then you getting getting to the big town and and trying to break in and then breaking in and regretting it basically uh but you also just sort of see Fellini getting so I mean, I, he had to be doing a bunch of drugs because otherwise I don't know what else would have inspired it. It's like really the the story of the 60s from 1960 to 1969, I, the way that his filmmaking evolves from as simple as black and white to color, but really from something that is more of a straight narrative to something that is just completely like dreamlike, abstract, otherworldly. It's just so satisfying to sit down and watch all in one and and just really accessible, really fun, funny. I mean, I, I don't know. I find Fellini very relatable in a lot of ways, uh, even when he's not relatable, the way that he reflects on how he's not relatable is relatable. And, and I just, there's something about the way he makes movies. And I think that this ties in maybe a little bit to the fact that he was, you know, he started off as a cartoonist, has always been, you know, vi- very visual, very, um, dynamic in how he shoots films let alone the you know how he's writing them and and the way that he's portraying his characters but uh you know the the visuals are just so important to him and the staginess of that the the colors the costumes like nino rhoda's amazing score just the way that all of this stuff comes together that, that that really helps it oh we didn't mention the score of Satyricon is like insane
1: <laughs> yeah i uh yeah, I mean Nita Rota does some of the score in that, but some of the most memorable music, like I don't even know where where it got dug up. Like that minotaur yes. scene. The the music in that is crazy.
0: And and so I mean all of that together, I mean it just it, the whole thing just feels so it's so artistic. It's it's reflective, it's self-aware, but it is, you know, it's this mining for truth, and I think there's something sort of beautiful about that. And and even when it in the truth is unflattering, I think there's something objectively and it's just interesting about that, and and I appreciate that about Fellini. I appreciate the fact that he's sort of willing to show us his ugly parts with his beautiful parts <laughs> uh, <laughs> of his soul, not not physically, uh, but um, you know. And and I don't know. I think there's there's a there's a weird, and you know, maybe it's. Um, my own set of values, but there's sort of a weird hero heroism in that. And I I've always appreciated that about him. And, and so like, I know, I, I know a lot of women uh, who do get really caught up in, in his sexism and misogyny. And, and I don't know, it just doesn't, it doesn't bother me. I, it's there for sure. But the way that he at least acknowledges it to me is, is sort of enough for me to be able to deal with it. He, he calls it out and he passes his own judgment on it many a time. And, and he still struggles with it. And that that's relatable to me is the struggle of knowing you're doing something that's incorrect, but you know you you can't help but do it and and you know not even knowingly half the time it's not even a conscious choice, like the conscious choice is to not do it, and yet here he is still falling back into these same patterns, and I don't know it's very human,
1: yeah, he's also i mean I think he's so appealing for i know for me when I was first starting out in. And becoming obsessed with movies, and you know, for for lots of film studies students, and you know, just people who like interesting films, and in, in general, like he's such an easy person to latch onto because he's such an auteur. Like, there's not a single movie that we watch for this episode where you couldn't immediately say, "Yep, this is a Fellini movie." He's got such a personal stamp, like such a, some of his '50s movies. You know, there's a lot in there that you can see is Fellini, but like in the 60s, he really like went went on uh, whether he was inspired by the you know, new wave critics and films and and them talking about how the only interesting films are the films that are clearly written by a single person, a single perspective that it can, you know, there's only one author and they are expressing themselves and the, the subject of the movies are the the author himself and, you know, Fellini fits that bill perfectly. You know, better Godard or, or I think he makes more entertaining films. They're easier to watch than Godard's in general. And they display a, a unique touch in a way that Bergman is another, you know, you're, it's obvious you're watching a Bergman film when you turn one on, but it's also the philosophy, the way that the, you know, the characters address each other, the, you know, the subject matter of, of Bergman's films that sort of make, identify him as a, an auteur. But Fellini really is like visually subject matter, like every it all works together to, you know, and in the 60s, he creates this body of work where it is absolutely the work of this one single individual. This is Fellini and it's not you can't confuse it with anybody else's work this is he he sort of creates a a tower a monument to himself with these 60s films that you know when you're first entering you know the the world of film and becoming obsessed like it's such an irresistible tower to want to climb to get to the top of because you i I don't know i I don't know if you had had the same experience when you were first being introduced to fellini's films or when you were first getting obsessed with film but there's something about Fellini that really is rewarding when you like first identify, oh yeah, there are people making these films. Every choice in this film that I'm watching is made by a person. And I can see in these films that there is this one insane genius who is making every single little choice in each of these films. That initially was the, the most appealing thing to me about Fellini, and it still is you a know, major reason for me to be, be drawn to him, be drawn to his works. They're so identifiable and unique and a thing unto themselves.
0: Like, absolutely. I don't know what the first movie that I started to sort of recognize that every choice was being made by the director, or by it a person, rather. Uh, that's a great way to put it i that's like that's definitely like a one of those key realizations where you that's the turning point of you either care about movies or you just like movies <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, i don't know that fellini was that for me i think fellini i was sucked into the visuals first but um, that's definitely become a huge part of what i appreciate about fellini's films in in the time since though and especially like la dolce Vita's i really like man i like I hate to be a cliche but like that's the one where you're like man just every single time I watch that movie there's something else and and I'm just so impressed with it each and every time and and especially the way that it's just so much deeper than even the critical reception of it really was as it when it came out and and I think even now it in a way it's become even more it's very easy to to create a caricature of these older uh movies as they get held up as as being you know, a piece of brilliant cinema. It's so easy to dismiss that. And I don't Fellini's Fellini is just one of those directors where I, I really, I can see the genius just every single time.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there are people who try and imitate, like, is there is there a more imitated director than Fellini is? I mean, besides just Woody Allen, I mean, like, Paolo Sorrentino basically remade La Dolce Vita as, as the great beauty, and then his... His terrible movie Youth after that was set in a in a health spa, like eight and a half and then was kinda you know, he kinda made a career for a little while out of remaking Fellini movies. But I think that every, you know, he's he's such an inspiration to so many other filmmakers who think that they've got the the stuff to to be the right. next Fellini. That they can, you know, like dump their subconscious onto film and have it be interesting, you know, these fascinating works that, that Fellini has created and they just don't succeed. Uh, you know, not that they're valueless, but, but there, there won't ever be another Fellini. That's, that's for sure.
0: So at the, at the, at the end of this whole thing, what do we think? Fellini best director of the sixties or bestest director?
1: Of the 60s? <laughs> 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 um. Yes, he
0: might be. And I and I hate I hate to to even limit myself with something as simplistic as that. But like, shit, like I think it might be
1: most significant director of the 60s. I will say absolutely. He may not be the director that I'm that I want to revisit the most. I still, you know, I'll still (laughs) I'll still watch Antonioni's films more, uh, even though I don't I don't think (laughs) I don't think they're not as fun. They're not as colorful they're not as exciting they're not as crazy but there's you know they speak to me a little more than Fellini does I guess and it's you know I think it's purely just a they're both two authors who you know have a rapport with their audience and uh, Antonioni what he has to say speaks to me more than than the hyper masculine self-flagellating of Fellini I guess but I also don't think Antonioni has you know changed the language of of film and the way that people watch films the the way that Fellini did at all
0: so that's that's the our overall conclusion is be more selfish and you'll change cinema forever yeah. <laughs> that's like the but that's the conclusion all these jerks took from Fellini and that's yeah. really wrecked cinema so you know who knows
1: <laughs> che- cheat on your wife and make confessional films about yeah it come on you'll be a genius like Fellini
0: You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart Deloro and Jenna Ipkar. The theme song is Io la conosce bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out Cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's Cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.